This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. It can be found on page 958 in your black-covered Bibles. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or if you're visiting, welcome. And if you're not new and you're not visiting, welcome. It's good to see everyone this morning. Um, our... Uh, our sanctuary is not normally lighted so romantically. Um, we have uh, new lights that got installed this week, and we'll have a sound system that is uh, hung and installed next week, and it'll all be uh, integrated in such a way that it'll all be back to normal when we get here on Sunday next week. So this week, we get uh, this nice mood lighting. Yeah, we can live with it. It's okay. All right. Um, yeah, so with that, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to jump right in. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not me, and certainly not any of us. Man, I ask, Spirit of God, would you open up our hearts? to receive your word? Would you open up our uh, affections to love you? Would you open up our eyes to see the glory of God, to love the glory of God, to delight in the glory of God, to see it as beautiful, to see it as true, to see it as spectacular? Would you give us zeal? Would you fill our affections with... um, like direction and weightiness, Lord. Would you do your work this morning? I ask for every single person in this room that we would arrive and sit down and listen and see the other people in this space with an attitude that you're up to something this morning, God. You're doing something. You're changing us. You're convicting us. You're transforming us. You're comforting us. You're, you're peeling back layer after layer after layer of your beauty and goodness and power and strength always. So I ask that we would come expectant, that we would be humble, that we would look to you. God, give us eyes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're wrapping, we're wrapping up a series of five weeks that we have spent on our mission statement. We have spent this time mainly looking at the mission, mission statement and drawing out of it different sections that apply to the Christian life in all circles so that people who are here don't only have to ascribe to this mission statement to benefit from what we're preaching on these last five weeks, but I want us to know what we're talking about when we use that language, and I'm at the end. So I'm going to talk about what it looks like to live for the glory of God and the good of the city this morning. The glory of God is the focal point 
of the mission of this church and all other efforts and goals of our mission as a church serve this end. This is the lifeblood of our work as Christians. This is the ultimate aim of everything that we do here on Sundays and everything that we do throughout the rest of our lives. We want to be the kind of people who can do everything to the glory of God. And I really want to spend the majority of our focus this morning on that one central reality. But before we get going too far down that road, I want to spend about five or six minutes talking about where we get the language of Uh, for the good of this city. That language came from and it was pulled out of a certain context when this church was planted 15 years ago. That phrase wound up in our mission statement because at the time, at the time that this church was planted, there was a movement of church planting efforts and momentum that was being spearheaded by men like the Presbyterian author and pastor in New York City, Tim Keller. He was leading a network called City to City because he noticed, as many other Christian leaders noticed at that time, that in this time in history, the specific role of the city in modern culture was increasing and becoming a certain uh, strategic influence for church planting. So what we mean is that men and women and families are continuing to populate cities and increasing um, the population of cities and groups of pastors began to very intentionally focus on reaching cities by planting gospel-centered churches in different cities throughout the nation and throughout the world. They were very intentionally seeking the welfare of the city. They were utilizing verses like Jeremiah 29.7 to fuel that movement and energize that movement. And as they became students of their surroundings and really missionaries of their cities, they were, they were emphasizing the gospel and its application to city life. There were churches that loved the gospel of Jesus and they were springing up with momentum and inertia back in the early 2000s. And during the birth of this church, the leaders were heavily influenced by this work And even today, we still see the fruit of this vision. We still experience the fruit of that beauty and that effort. And also, there has over time been confusion about what for the good of this city means. In different seasons of our church, we've seen members start nonprofits. We've seen members fund and organize the beginning of charter schools in the inner city. We've seen neighborhoods run their own vacation Bible schools. We've seen different leaders seeking to bring positive change and influence even to the political arena or the social services sector. We've seen different leaders in our church over the years bringing different kinds of positive change in different ways and manifesting the phrase for the good of the city in different ways over the lifetime and over the life and movement of this church. And I want to make clear that our phrase for the good of the city extends way beyond the category of whether or not you live in a metropolis, whether or not you live in the country, The real point of that phrase is way more about the place that God has placed you, wherever that is, and how you participate in it, or whether you seclude yourself from opportunities to engage. 
Our phrase for the good of the city is more about our personal engagement with whatever is around us, whatever the culture is, the politics are, or the society is that's specifically surrounding us and how we engage it, how we care about it, how we strategize, how we think about bringing the gospel to it. We want to be the kind of people here and we want to grow the kind of people that have conviction to live lives with a sense of responsibility and a sense of stewardship for their resources, for the flourishing of other people, for the good of other contexts around them. The Christian mandate to subdue the earth comes with a mandate to take stock of what's around you and care about it. Like, take stock of what's around you and give a rip. This is why historically Christians have always started schools and started hospitals and started universities. This is an impulse that has a long and beautiful legacy in Christian history. When Christians live this way, living lives of service to those around them, it'll necessarily be good for the people within your proximity. It'll be good for the neighborhood around you, the community around you, and the city around you. But that statement requires that we understand what is good for something at all. And I want to be clear that we want to reject the world's versions of what goodness is, of what the good life is. That means not only having a different kind of cognitive definition, but in our hearts, we must keep at bay different definitions of what good for us is. And in order to do that, I want to serve you and highlight some things that we don't mean by the good of the city. The first one is this, the good of the city, the good of the city just doesn't mean that everyone is going to like us or everyone is going to like you. Luke 6.26 is clear when it says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So there's a real sense in which we do good to those who hate us. And for Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Or again from John 15, if the world hates you, remember, you need to know it hated me first. It hated me first. And when you do good to the world, when you do good to others that hate you, there's no guarantee they're going to stop. There's no promise that that's going to turn things around for you in that relationship. He says, if, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first and it hates you because I chose you out of the world. So I could go on and on, but you cannot believe that if we're doing something good for our city, that that necessarily means that our city is going to agree with us. We can't believe that if we do something good for our friends or our family or our workplace, or our neighborhoods, that our neighborhood is automatically going to be on the same page. We aren't guaranteed that they will agree. And even more, even more, our faithfulness can't be the mark, or it can't be judged by the agreement or the applause from the world around us. There isn't like a thermometer going up that the world is applauding us that tells us when we're doing a faithful job as believers. 
The second thing that we don't mean is we don't, we don't mean when we say for the good of the city that we exist just for the urban core, for example. Our vision does not, isn't, isn't narrowly centered on a specific socioeconomic group or a certain part of the city. Christians are told to love their neighbors. And Jesus plainly expa- explains that your neighbor is a person that God's brought across your pathway, whatever that is. For the good of the city means in a real practical way, the good of whoever's in front of you right now. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're given an amazing story to apply to our lives that doesn't let any of us off the hook. Essentially, we learn from that parable that if you look down on somebody, that's your neighbor. If you look down on rich people, they're your neighbor. If you look down on poor people, they're your neighbor. If you look down on educated people, they're your neighbor. If you look down on uneducated people, those people are your neighbor. If you look down on city folk or rural people, they're your neighbor. That parable is way more about our personal judgment and the kind of elitist boundaries that we put up than it is about the proximity of who lives next door to us. You could live next door to someone that isn't a struggle at all to include and to love. But if you want to grow as a Christian, you have to pay attention to your own posture inside your own heart. Who, who are the untouchables in your world? Who are the untouchables in your world? Where are the social barriers that you've set up in your heart? Do you have like other people just summed up or judged in your heart? Who's beyond your kindness and mercy and service? Whoever that person is, that's your neighbor and they live in your city, so to speak. Christ demonstrated true humility and sacrifice. Christ lived this way. Christ demonstrated living for the glory of God and the good of others perfectly. Perfectly. That's why we want to live that way. Christ ate and drank and did whatever he did for the glory of God and the benefit of other people. And that's why we frame the logic of our mission statement the way that we do. But That also begs the question, who decides what's good for the city and why was that ever a value? And I want to spend the rest of the morning on the glory of God because that's the point of today. That's the point of our lives. That's the point of the universe. And when we live for the glory of God, when that's what activates us, when that's what animates us, when that's what we're obsessed with, there will be a very real and natural outworking of that life. There will be real ramifications. There will be natural consequences. There'll be natural repercussions. The Bible talks about these kinds of relationships in organic metaphors all the time. There's necessarily good fruit that will come from a tree that's living for the glory of God. There's necessarily a good harvest that comes from sowing a life that is lived for and towards the glory of God. So the mission statement's a little sneaky, right? The truth is, is that the glory of God is the highest good that exists and it will always do good to others as we live to glorify God. It is a loving thing for you to live to the glory of God. Our text today makes it very practical. 
So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In this specific context, this verse is clearing up a matter of dispute in the, in the Corinthian church regarding how we should interact with matters of Christian conscience and Christian liberty. But the short practical exhortation also extends to all areas of life because God's glory is the aim and purpose of why we exist in the first place. So today, I want to bring attention to the glory of God. I want to bring attention to the glory of God. I want to bring attention to the glory of God. And I want to do that by looking at what God's relationship is to his own glory, what our relationship is to the glory of God, and then how does one live all of life for the glory of God? What's God's relationship to his own glory? What does God think about his own glory? What's God's attitude or his posture toward his own glory? What's the Bible say? In Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, we read, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it for how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. So God acts, God performs loving actions of preservation and safeguarding and protection for you, for his glory. God says in Ezekiel 20, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Isaiah 43 says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. There's multiple places in the scriptures where God explains that he won't forsake his people for his own great namesake for Samuel 12. God says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David, second Kings. Again, in Ezekiel 36, he says, it is not, it is not for your sake O house of Israel, that I'm about to act before the sake of my holy name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Isaiah 49 says, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. This kind of logical structure is all over the Old Testament. God's actions, God's actions to save and to punish are for his glory. God's actions to bless and to curse are for his glory. God's actions to rescue and to kill are for his glory. God's actions to create and to destroy are for his glory. They're everywhere associated with the protection and defense and display of his glory. We see up and down are for his glory. Straight and crooked are for his glory. East and west are for his glory. North and south exist 
for the glory of God. God makes oaks of righteousness for his glory and he condemns the wicked for his glory. The Bible is just saturated, saturated with both the preservation of and the pervasiveness of the glory of God. It says the, the glory of God one day will cover the earth the same way that the waters cover the sea. That's to say everywhere, everywhere. God raised up Pharaoh for his glory and God drowned Pharaoh for his glory. Glory sometimes talked about in the Bible as internal, like excellency or dignity or worthiness. And sometimes it's external in possessions or riches. Glory in the Bible is expressed as magnitude and gravity and heft, along with value and worthiness and excellence. These are the characteristics of the glory of God. And God's zealous in the Bible to prevent a diminished view of his glory. And he is zealous to preserve, preserve and promulgate his glory. The word of God leaves no question. God is very serious about his own glory. And he won't let it be smeared with mud. He loves it and cherishes it and enjoys it. And get this, he invites every person in the world to enjoy it with him. What's our relationship to the glory of God? At this point, my heart's desire, my heart's desire for you, for this church, is that your relationship to the glory of God would be simple. I pray that you would love it that you would love the glory of God, that you would cherish it and delight in it. All I want this morning is for us to desire or long or yearn for the glory of God a little bit more than when we entered. I want you to love the glory of God. I want you to treasure the glory of God. I want you to put this verse into very practical use and do everything that you do in your life for the glory of God. The word glory isn't a word that we use often, except in ironic ways or in silly ways, like when we call pizza or barbecue glorious. I'm not trying to insult anybody. I love barbecue too. But the fact is, is that we actually demonstrate, we demonstrate as human beings that we see glory in something all the time, all the time. So the move I want to make is to convince you that you're very familiar with glory. Human beings naturally have a relationship to what they find glorious. We naturally express the glory that we see and the glory that we're enjoying. And the author C.S. Lewis is helpful here. I'm going to read a quote from one of his works. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not, is not merely an expression but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of com compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone about how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn in the, in the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people that you're with care about that kind of thing, not at all, or they care about it like a tin can in a ditch. 
to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these things are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us tenderly to enjoy him. My point here is to explain that you find glory in all kinds of things all the time in your life. And you can't help but constantly be searching for something to enjoy, which is to say that you are constantly searching for something to glory in. And the scriptures constantly turn us back to God's glory because it is, for, it is the most glorious glory that exists in the universe. God's glory is his name, his fame, his renown, his prestige, his eminence, his grandeur, and his majesty. His glory is the thing that draws us up into wonder and beauty and praise. It orients our hearts in affection towards the living God. God's glory isn't stuffy or stale or boring. It is incomprehensible. It is blinding. It is intensifying. It is rich and pure. The glory of God is God's immutable attributes radiating forth. The glory of God is the bursting expression of everything that he himself is. When God invites us to look at his glory and to love it, he isn't forcing us to abandon the thrilling and embrace the dull. The exact opposite is going on. He's inviting us to let go of the dull and take hold of the most thrilling thing in the universe. He's inviting us to drop earthly things and take hold of him instead. Our minds are dull. Our taste buds are dull. Our imaginations are always too small. Our affections are bland and flat. Sin takes corrupted good things and makes them into God's for us and sin deceives us into believing that things like drugs or sex or fame or fortune will bring us life and joy and meaning. Sin deceives us and makes us believe that illicit things are delicious, but it's a lie. Proverbs tells us that bread gained by, by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. There's something sweet about illicit joys, but in the end, they'll fill your mouth with dirt. Sin makes that bread sweet, and that sweetness doesn't last. And in truth, it really was always trash compared to the glory of God, compared to his goodness and grace and mercy and loving kindness. Philippians 3, Paul tells us that whatever gain he had, he counts as loss for the, for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For the sake of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. The sinfulness of sin is revealed in how we tend to trade the glory of God for the glory of created things instead. That's the twistedness of sin. It trades the beautiful 
for the corrupted. It trades the pure for the contaminated. It trades life-giving for certain death. And we as humans are incapable of seeing and appreciating and relishing the glory of God outside of Christ. Indeed, without the saving and transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we would only trade the glory of God for cheap imitations and cheap counterfeits. So how do we live? How do we eat and drink for the glory of God? How does one do everything for the glory of God? And I want to say that first, we must see the light. First, we must see the light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the same kind of powerful creation work must happen in our hearts for us to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The the same kind of creative power must be at work inside of us before we can see and savor and delight in the glory of Jesus Christ. And repenting and believing is the first step. Moving from death to life is the first kind of relocation. Only by placing your faith in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf can you live a life that's set to obey God and aimed consciously and intentionally to glorify God. Christian, it's the same God. It's the same God who spoke light into darkness, who spoke the universe into existence that has spoken again in your heart to bring you from death into life. It's the same spirit of God that has raised Jesus Christ from the dead that lives inside you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies right now by the same spirit living within you. Romans 8, 11 tells us, The power of the Spirit is what we need to love God and love others. The power of the Spirit of God is what we need to obey God. The power of the Holy Spirit is what we need to live a life of obedience to God. It's the power of God's Holy Spirit that gives life to our mortal bodies so that we can live our entire lives to and for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, the specific context is speaking about Christian conscience and Christian liberty. But the exhortation is to do whatever you do. Come to whatever conclusions that you come to. Make the decisions that you make. Think how you think. Do what you do for the glory of God as opposed to for yourself. Let that be the orientating principle of us, the people in this church. Let that orientate how we see the decision-making process. What brings God glory instead of me glory? His exhortation is in the context of verses 23 and 24, which says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. 
In this respect, we are glorifying God with everything we do when we are arranging our decisions around the good of others more than for our own good. We're glorifying God in all that we do and we're consumed with not what is or isn't lawful, but what is or isn't helpful. Not what is or isn't lawful, but what is or isn't profitable. Not what is or isn't lawful. What can I get away with, but what is going to build somebody else up? What is edifying to my brother and sister in the Lord? This is so much deeper than what your eating and drinking is about. It's the exhortation to let all of your activities and decisions be organized in obedience to Jesus and for the love of other people. If you need to, lay down your freedoms for the sake of others. If love requires it, then forego your own pleasure and liberty in order to live in a way that seeks the glory and fame and renown of Jesus Christ. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus died to redeem us and make us a people who are zealous for good works. And later in Titus 3.14, Paul says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Why? Because in places like Matthew 5, which Jesus tells us, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter 4.11 says, whoever serves, let them serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. That's how it works. Our service shines light that brings glory. We reflect, reflect the glory of our Father. So eat for the glory of God and drink for the glory of God. Discipline your children for the glory of God. Teachers, teach for the glory of God. Children, obey your parents for the glory of God. Fathers, parent your kids for the glory of God. Mothers, love, love unrestrained for the glory of God. Doctors and lawyers and builders and contractors, ditch diggers, do all of it for and to and through Christ for the glory of God. Like you belong to someone else. Like your life really isn't yours and it doesn't belong to you. Then when others see your work, they'll see it and they will glorify our Father. Mow your yards for the glory of God and host the stranger and the outcast for the glory of God. And as I wrap up, I'm going to end with Jesus' words from John 17 where he says, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those you have given him. Father, glorify the Son so that the Son can glorify you. Even on the edges of Jesus' death, he was praying for the glory of God to be manifest for us, for our good, for our enjoyment. Even in his final hour, God's glory was central in the prayers of Jesus. God's glory isn't stuffy religion. It's what we were made for and we'll never find true purpose or joy without living our lives for his glory. So give up on your own. Give up on efforts to glorify your, yourself. Trying to do this will actually kill you. 
Your heart and soul will, will shrivel. They weren't meant to be glorified. But you can live for the glory of God, something larger than yourself, and enjoy him forever. And that's what he's inviting you into today, right now. And that's what we're inviting you into through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It's the reason that we proclaim the Lord's death again and again and again and again until he comes back. And before we move to communion in the service where we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's one more thing I want to highlight. I want to point to the logic of the Old Testament that says, for my namesake, for my namesake, for my namesake, I'm going to do this because I made promises to the people of Israel and I'm going to keep good on those promises and say, Christian, if you're here this morning, God has made very real promises to you and all of them are staked on his glory. He's just as zealous for his glory to guarantee those promises come true as he was then. He is right now. That's what you stand on, not your effort. That's what you stand on, not your uh, deliberate effort to check all the boxes or your white knuckling to look good enough for us or good enough for God. The promises of the scriptures are yours in Christ and they're staked on the glory of God. God's not going to lose. He's going to make sure and get that glory in your life, in our life, in our church. That's why we proclaim the gospel every week through communion. So if you're a believer in this, in this room, we invite you to proclaim the gospel with us through eating and drinking, through breaking a piece of bread off and dipping into a cup. The stoneware cup is wine. The glassware is juice. We'll have a station to my right and left and a station in the balcony. We'll also have a single serve station that is gluten-free uh, in the center right here in front of me. And we'll also have prayer ministers to my left underneath the stained glass window who would love to pray for anyone, for anything, for any time. If you need prayer this morning, please don't leave without getting in. If you're not a believer, we invite you to stay in your seats. I invite you to ask the living God to reveal himself to you. If you think God's glory is boring, I invite you to look at him and pray that he make it real to you, perhaps for the first time in your life. Jesus died and rose. He lived a perfect life so you can be set free from living a life for your own glory. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pray and thank Jesus for his body and his blood. And the servers are going to come forward and the worship team is going to come back up. And then when I'm done praying, anybody who's here can come forward and, and take and eat in faith. So with that said, Jesus, thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. On the night that you were betrayed, you broke bread and gave thanks and said, this is my body. And you likewise took a cup of wine and you said, this is my blood poured out for many, poured out for my friends, poured out for my brothers and sisters in this room right now. So I ask that you would ignite, catalyze, energize a new faith in their hearts as they come down to eat. I ask that it would be a proclamation of the gospel in their hearts, confidence in your goodness confidence in your power, celebration in what you've done for them. We ask all of these things in the powerful, real, high, and lifted up name of Jesus. Amen. Come up and eat when you're ready.